We're looking this morning at the subject of fellowship to spur on spirituality. You'll notice from your bulletin outline that we want to talk firstly about the Barnabas that we're all called to be. You say, well, that's a strange statement. The Barnabas we're all called to be. Well, you'll understand that as we go through. First, we meet. We first meet Barnabas in Acts 4, where the apostles, Peter and John, were being persecuted by the Jewish authorities for preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. They had been brought before the Jewish council and warned to stop preaching in Jesus' name. This they refused to do. And because there was no consensus among the Jewish leaders as to what to do about them, they just let the apostles go on that first occasion. But this was simply the tip of the iceberg of the trouble which awaited the apostles and the believers of the Jerusalem church. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, all of the apostles were arrested, all of them were imprisoned, all of them were brought before the Sanhedrin, they were again warned and again refused to comply, but this time they were flogged and then released. So you can see this is an obvious escalation of the persecution. Now you're going to take a beating because you didn't listen to us the first time. And as a sub-theme that's just as real, the brethren of the Jerusalem church were beginning to experience their own form of persecution. People began to lose their jobs. Their properties were confiscated. The necessities of life, food, housing, clothing, became an issue for this church. Remember, this was a church of over 5,000 men. Sorry, ladies. Jewish way of counting. They didn't count women and children. They counted the men only. So that would be like saying, okay, then the Thornville membership role just includes the heads of the households. That's it. But we know there were women and children there, and it probably added another uh, 10,000 to the church. So we're talking of a church of probably 15,000 people or more. The super churches in America today have nothing on the Jerusalem church. This was a very, very large church. And they're suffering persecution. Years later, even the churches in Asia had heard of the plight of the Jerusalem church. So it seemed to be ongoing. They took up an offering to send by Paul to Jerusalem because of the continued persecution. Initially in Jerusalem, believers who had property sold it, and we read, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Acts 4 Verse 35. So with this persecution, with shortages, with the need for supplying needs for people, this is what the people did of the Jerusalem church. And it is at this juncture that we are introduced to Barnabas. We read in Acts 4, verse 36 and 37, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. The apostles dubbed him with this name change because he had a history of doing many things in the role of a spiritual encourager to the saints. For example, in Acts 11, a dispersion of the Jewish believers fled to Cyprus, Cyrene, and Antioch after the martyrdom of Stephen. Things are heating up. Okay? So the Christians said, we're going to have to get out of here. And they did, and they went to these three areas. We read, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Acts 11, 22 through 24. So here you can see what's going on here. There's a dispersion that takes place. The people in Jerusalem, particularly the apostles, they hear about this church in Antioch. That would be considerably north of Jerusalem, actually north of uh, the Galilean area. And they said, okay, who, now, who can we send up there? Let's see. Hmm, yeah, let's, uh, I know. We'll send Barnabas up there. And up there he went. And when he went there, he encouraged them all, these new believers, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And the very next verse states, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Acts 11, 25 and 26. That's the short version. The longer version harks back to Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road. And yet the apostles were all skeptical that Saul had actually become a Christian because he was the one that started the persecution in Jerusalem with the death of Stephen. See how this is all dovetailed together? We read, but Barnabas took him, Saul, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how, in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of, oh, they couldn't believe it, in the name of Jesus. Acts 9, verse 27. This person, persecutor, who was a killer of Jesus' followers, is now preaching Jesus in Damascus. And Barnabas took him to the apostles and said, you know, guys, there really has been a change in this man's life. I was there. I heard it. I listened as he preached Jesus fearlessly in Damascus, the very place he went to with letters from the Sanhedrin 
to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem so they could stand trial and be executed. Do you know that the body of Christ will ever be indebted to Barnabas for speaking up on behalf of Saul of Tarsus? And bridging the animosity and the fear that had arisen from Saul's tyranny to bring healing and unity to the Christian community. Barnabas did that. Wow. The role of an encourager. Again, it was Barnabas who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey and later returned on the second journey to ordain elders in all of the established churches. This is Barnabas. It was Barnabas along with Paul whom the church at Antioch appointed as reps to the Jerusalem council to resolve the dispute as to whether or not Greeks had to be circumcised according to Jewish law in order to be saved. Who can we send down there? Oh, well, we'll send Paul, but we'll send Barnabas with him. And off they went. And my point is that God calls us all in our time and place in history to be encouragers in the faith to others as was Barnabas. We who preach have this responsibility. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, But everyone who prophesies or preaches speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. But encouragement of others is not exclusively a pastoral duty. When there was false teaching that came into Thessalonica concerning the second coming of Christ, Paul wrote, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, those that have died. For the Lord Himself will come from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, here it is, encourage each other with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4. 14 through 18. Paul is saying, use these truths to correct error in people's thinking and to embolden them to anticipate the Lord's return in its proper context. Use this information to refute those liars who have said and have taught that the Lord has already come and you people missed out. You see, they were discouraged. <laughs> that's, that's what was going on. So wait a minute, wait a minute. The Lord has not come. You didn't miss out. There's been some false teaching up here. Here's the way it is. Now, take these truths and encourage one another. Again, in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul deals with the second coming from the standpoint of surprise. And how we believers are to live so as not to be surprised. 
He says, but you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, here it is again, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4 and following. Now observe. Here again, Paul as the preacher lays out the truth, but then he tells the brethren how to use these truths to encourage one another and to build each other up in the faith. This is how I can say that my role and your role as encouragers are combined and they complement each other for the sake of moving each other to maturity in the faith. We must all be a Barnabas. A Barnabas. Why? Second point. We all need a Barnabas. That's why. We all need a Barnabas. There's a verse in the Bible that I muse over now and again, and it, and it reads like this. It says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for, as, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians 6, verse 9. I read that every once in a while. You know why I read that every once in a while? I read that verse to remind myself of my duty in serving Christ. I need to be reminded because in my sin of self-pity, I do get weary of doing good. Anyone, no show of hands, anyone in the same boat with me? I wonder, I wonder, is it worth Continuing on, I ask the question, when, if ever, will the harvest come? People think about that. I think ministers in particular are very vulnerable to the politics of Christianity. We watch as other churches seem to prosper and grow and forge ahead, and we make comparisons. We make comparisons because the world's criteria of success is too much with us. And I say things to myself like, you know, I've been pastoring for 30 years at Thornville. 
I've seen that church grow and diminish at least four times. One step forward, yay! Two steps backwards. Ooh, boo, boo. And I say, well, what am I doing? Where's the promised harvest? My friends in the pastorate travel down the same path at times, and that is why the pastor's fellowship is so important, because when we meet to study God's word and to pray, we hold each other's feet to the fire, and we remind each other that the church belongs to Christ, not to us. And Jesus may do with his people what he will. We would all like to see our churches grow, not so that we may have a nationally recognized church or ministry, but so that the gospel will have triumph in the community in which we live and minister. We want Christ to be exalted. We want sinners to come to know him. These are the things we value. And when it doesn't come to fruition, we become weary in doing well. Keeping on keeping on. But then I read Paul's analysis of ministry. And here's what he says. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. I read that verse and again, wow. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession Question mark, question mark, question mark. Where's the triumphal procession? Through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Let me read the rest of the verse. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. As we speak before God as men sent by God, there will always be two possible outcomes. Sometimes men, when we speak, our message is the smell of death to hearers because they are convicted of their sin, 
They're made to realize that the judgment is coming. The message is disturbing, to say the least. And so people are repulsed and they are hardened all the more. In other words, sometimes when we preach, there is no spiritual harvest. Just a hardening and a confirming of people in their unbelief. And that's one outcome. And the other outcome is that when we give forth the gospel, it is the fragrance of life to those who hear it. It's the breath of fresh air that they've needed all along without knowing that they needed it. And so they come, they repent, they believe, and Christ becomes their Savior, and they're incorporated into the body of Christ. And there is the harvest, the spiritual harvest. But the point that Paul is making is that ministers have to accept both outcomes and in any case refuse to peddle God's word just to see some profit, even if the profit might be due to watering down or denying the gospel altogether. And having said that, and siding yet with Paul, it's hard for the flesh to be content with little or no positive results. But Paul says, no, you don't, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not getting it. You're getting results. You just haven't thought of the negative result that God has you doing. What's that? Confirming unbelief and the hardening of hearts, being the smell of death to people, as well as the fragrance of life. Do you know that every one of you here will be judged for every sermon that you've heard from this pulpit, whether I was doing the preaching or Blake before me or guest speakers or what have you, if it's been the gospel, you are accountable. You are accountable. My job is to be faithful in giving forth the word of God and your task is to hear and obey. My point is, that ministers no less than you need a Barnabas in their life. They do. Paul put it this way, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Oh, 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 oh yeah, and pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I declare it fearlessly as I should. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Ministers need a Barnabas in their lives. People that will pray for them and encourage them. Keep on keeping on as we fight an enemy that is opposed, diametrically opposed to the gospel of truth. But I would say, too, that ministers are not alone in needing encouragement. Listen, as Moses addressed the new generation of Israelites who were again at the threshold of entering the promised land. Here's what he said. Moses said to the Gadites and the Reubenites, that's two tribes, two of the tribes, 
Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? They haven't gone yet. They haven't crossed Jordan yet. The Gadites and the Reubenites, you know, they're, they're on the east side of the Jordan, and they're saying, hey, guys, it looks pretty good over here. <laughs> you know, what's over there that's any better than what we got here? Why don't we just stay here? Oh, I know that's called the promised land, but this, <laughs> this land looks pretty promising too. And so Moses is talking to them. Shall your countrymen go to the war and you sit here? Notice, why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land that the Lord had given them. And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. I'm telling you, if you turn away from following Him, He will again leave all this leave all these, these people in the desert, and you will be the cause of their destruction. Number 32, verse 6 and following. Wow. Talk about repeating history, right? So Moses is almost saying something like, you know, I, I, I just can't believe you guys. You're going to sit here on this side of the Jordan, and you're going to discourage all the other tribes from entering into the promised land where God said they are, they're to go. And you're going to take it easy. You're going to lean back in your lounge chair. Well, they're going to get bloody. They're going to get dead. And I'm telling you right now, if you do this, the Lord's going to send your generation back out in the desert and they're all going to die out there like your moms and dads did you're going to be responsible for it. Well, Moses' rebuke had this wonderful effect. Here it is. Then they came up to him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children, but we are ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. Numbers 32, verse 16 through 18. Sometimes, brethren, the actions or lack thereof of other believers is enough to discourage us from our duties. Moses knew that. We think, if so-and-so is not living up to their responsibilities, why should I? We need a Moses or a Barnabas to encourage us to duty. Again, sometimes our fears are enough to discourage us. Our own fears. No one does this to us. We do it to us. 
In the days of Jehoshaphat, a godly king of Judah, a vast army from Moab and Edom came against Israel. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and their little ones, stood there before the Lord. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12 and 13. So you see the predicament. They're being surrounded by enemies. An invasion is impending. And they are doing a quick head count, calculations, and they're saying, God, we are in trouble. We don't know what to do. We do not have the resources, the manpower, the know-how, the, the military expertise to thwart this invasion. Well, God sent a prophet to the king with this message. Listen to the message. Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm. See the deliverance of the Lord that He will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15 through 17. Now, you can see in what the prophet is saying to them that they are discouraged because they're being commanded, don't be fearful, don't be discouraged. Whenever you hear commands in the imperative coming that way, it means they're already there and they need to stop it. And the reason they should stop it is because, guess what? They're not going to have to fight. The Lord's, it's the Lord's battle, not theirs. So, well, that's just nice. That's just on God's say-so, you know. We'll get out there in the field and they're going to slaughter us. No, no, that, no. No, see, God's commands call on us to believe Him when He tells us these wonderful things. So what happened? We read, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, I can hardly believe this, as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in His prophets and you will be successful. And after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for His love. Whoa! For His love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir, 
who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. 2 Chronicles 20, 18 through 22. From a heart of discouragement and fear and shaking and trembling, and Lord, we don't know what we're going to do, to worship of God and singing as they're going forth into battle, or at least stand their position there, praising God for, of all things, His love. His love. I think they needed to be uh, reminded of that a little bit. Yeah, they were about to be slaughtered in their thoughts. And God is just reminding them, you know, I love you. The battle isn't yours, it's mine. And I'll take care of you. Just be faithful. Just believe. Let me ask you, what are some of the fears that you have that may be the cause of great discouragement in your Christian walk? Likely no one's going to come park around your house, at least not yet, with a machine gun threatening to do you and your family in. But there's all kinds of fears. What about the fear of unemployment and the loss of income? In our economy, that's a real fear. Jesus says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? That's all related to income, isn't it? We were used to paying our own bills with what we earned. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, and each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, verse 31 through 34. One of the blessed teachings of the Sermon on the Mount from Christ to His disciples. What about fear that your children will not become part of the family of God? I know every Christian parent worries about that. And that can be discouraging. We have the promises of God. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not turn from it. Proverbs 22, verse 6. The psalmist is even more precise. He says... What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders that He's done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born that aren't here yet. And they in turn would tell their children. Then, then, they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. Psalm 78, verse 3 through 7. That's just an Old Testament way of saying, if you will do this, then those generations, your children, will come to know God and become obedient to Him. What about the fear of our nation succumbing to the decadence and the wickedness of our day resulting in anarchy and ruin? If you've been watching the news this week, in the last week, and the last week, 
you will know that this is going on in America right now today. Again, the psalmist help us. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, I'm right there in it. <laughs> I'm in the middle of it. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O oh Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Psalm 138, verse 7 and 8. What's he saying? Was he in the midst? Oh, yeah. In the midst of anarchy. Trouble all around. I'm just standing in the middle of it. But the Lord has promised to preserve me and you. And he has promised that his purpose for you will be fulfilled. It's a tremendous way to live your life, I want to tell you. you know, think those thoughts. What about the fear of illness? The fear of disability that comes with old age? Visiting some of our seniors that are bedridden and so forth, I am reminded that this is a real fear. But David writes, Blessed is the one who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O oh Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Psalm 41. Made promises to us. Or again, I was young, writes David, and now I am old, and yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Turn from evil and do good, and then you will dwell in the land forever, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Psalm 37, 25 through 29. So what I'm saying is whatever your fear, whatever your concerns, God is the answer for daily life as well as for eternal life. And our faith must be more than mere words and pious platitudes. We have a living faith. I love that about that text we read about Jehoshaphat. Don't worry, Jehoshaphat. The battle's mine, not yours. Okay, let's go sing. <coughs> he was a godly king, faithful king. Now secondly, how do we become a Barnabas, an encourager in spiritual matters? Let me just suggest these four things. Number one, make sure you are in a right relationship with God. That's number one. No one can encourage another spiritually unless they themselves are indwelled by God's Spirit and are themselves in a right relationship with God. What do we read about Barnabas? We read, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
Acts 11, verse 24. This is just a way of saying, it'll take a believer to encourage another believer. So, seek out counseling from people who know God because the people of the world only know self-help, psychobabble that's full of the world's philosophy, which is anathema to God. No cleansing. No cleansing occurs from the filth of the world. No help issues from religious hypocrites. Yeah, there's a lot of religious people, and they got the religious jargon. Like the Pharisees, to whom Jesus said, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Matthew 22, verse 29. What a lethal combination for a teacher, a rabbi. Wow. You guys are the teachers, but you don't know the Scriptures, number one, and you know nothing of the power of God in your own life, number two. (laughs) And yet you're going to help others spiritually. I would say don't even listen to family and friends if they are ignorant of God. They'll lead you astray because they're still in a state of resistance to the truth of God. And they're going to give you the latest psychological manipulations, and so forth to deal with problems. They don't work because they deny the truth of God. So, first of all, you can't be a spiritual encourager unless you are spiritually rightly related to God through Christ. Secondly, speak the truth of God, not your own opinion. You want to be an encourager to somebody, give them the truth of God. You may think your opinion counts for something, but no one else does. What the discouraged person needs to hear, as we have seen this morning, is a word from God. This takes things out of the realm of conjecture and fastens us and and the listener upon the firm rock of our salvation. Why is the book of Psalms such a comfort to believers? It is because the songs are the heart cry and God's answer to any and all ills that can possibly come into a believer's life. You think you're unique. You're not unique. Read the Psalms and you'll find out you're just like every other believer that ever lived on the earth. We have seen this even in today's study. The enemies, illness, our fears of old age, fears whether founded or fictional, you name it. The Psalms show that our spiritual ancestors experienced it before you and they found resolution and hope in God's Word. The psalmist says, See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. Psalm 119, verse 159. Or again, the enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. And so my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and I consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land 
Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Show me the way that I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. My, may your good spirit lead me on level ground. Psalm 143, verse 3 and following. Where is he getting his consolation and hope? He's getting it from the word of God. He's asking God to be his teacher and instructor. And that's what we need to give to people if you want to help them out of their discouragement. Give them the word of God, not your opinion. Thirdly, learn how to admonish in love. And the last phrase is important. In love. Admonish in love. As a follower of Christ, you cannot rubber stamp every opinion or propose action of another believer just because he or she is your friend. Let me say it again. As a follower of Christ, you cannot rubber stamp every opinion or proposed activity of another believer just because he or she is your friend. Solomon wrote it this way. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wounds from a friend? Yeah, that's admonition. You cannot be a Barnabas to other Christians unless you're willing to admonish them to think better, speak better, and to do better as one who claims to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You see, the world rubs off on us whether we want to or not. And you cannot live in a dirty world without taking a shower now and again. And David was feeling rather indignant and rather judicial as the king and judge and jury over Israel, as Nathan the prophet told him his little tale about a man who stole a farmer's one ewe lamb to feed his guests. And David says, Ah, oh, that guy should surely die. He deserves to die. He's feeling pretty good. Until Nathan said, you are the man. You did it. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would give, have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7 through 9.
pretty hard words for David to swallow, right? Uh, Nathan, could you cook maybe mm, candy coat that a little bit? Could you could you kind of maybe back off a little, Tony? I, I, I mean, after all, I am the Lord's anointed. He didn't take it that way. And you can read the context to see his repentance, but later David would write this. Listen to this, what he writes. Let a righteous man strike me. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Yet my prayer is ever against the deeds of evildoers. Psalm 141, verse 5. He's saying, I need admonition. I need correction. It's a kindness. Our text, verse 14, says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. That, in the King James, says competent to admonish one another. You want to be a Barnabas, an encourager? You have to be willing to admonish in love. And on the other side of the fence, brethren, we need to accept admonition in love. Even if you disagree with it, even if you think the brother or sister has uh, maligned you or misrepresented you or not understood your actions, you need to say, um, okay, Lord, this is how they see it. This is the way I came across. What do you have to teach me? And then lastly, to be an encourager, you need to become a prayer partner with the person that's discouraged. This is my, that's my point. I cannot tell you how many times I have been encouraged by someone saying to me, you know, I'll be praying about that for you, Pastor. You know why that's important? It's, be, it's important because some things cannot be fixed immediately by your counsel or your quotation of a scripture verse, no matter how relevant the scripture verse is. So well, what do you mean? I mean, things that run deep require the direct intervention of God himself. Yeah, we have all these means of grace, prayer, scripture verses, counseling, all of these things, and we ought to employ them all. But I'm saying, you know, sometimes you're, some, somewhere along the line, you're going to run into something that's real deep. And you're going to have to say with Jehoshaphat, Lord, we can't handle this. I don't have it. What are you going to do? 
One day a man approached Jesus with his demon-possessed son and told him how he had asked. He had asked his disciples to exercise this demon, but they couldn't do it. So after Jesus successfully cast out the demon and restored the boy to health, we read, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Now they had just come back from a preaching tour, you understand. You read the context. And they had driven out a lot of demons in the name of Christ and so forth. So his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Mark 9, verse 28 and 29. In other words, in your role of encourager, in your role of helper, healer in this case, you can apply all the means, but sometimes you're going to run up against something that is so deep and so involved that even as you apply the means, prayer, Bible verses, counseling, all of those things, it ain't going to help much. What's going to help is the direct intervention of God himself. And you get his intervention through prayer. Disciples, you could have probably cast out this demon, but you needed to pray more. You needed God's direct help in doing this. Paul writes, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, train, or excuse me, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 And verse 18 says, Ephesians 6.18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Ephesians 6.18 You want to be an encourager? A Barnabas? You need to be a man or a woman full of the Holy Spirit. And you need to know how to pray. For one another. Keep confidences and pray for one another. If you're a Mr. Fix It kind of guy or gal, oh, I'm so glad you came to talk to me. Well, here's what you should do. And you get out your list and you go down through. And you look at this verse, look at that verse, so forth. If you're a, that kind of a person, you need to dwell hard and long on this last point. There's going to be some things you can't fix. 
even when you say all the right words, give the correct counsel. Maybe that person's heart isn't ready to hear it. Who can change a heart? Can you change a heart? Only God can change a heart. We need to be men and women who pray for all the saints all the time. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're thankful and appreciative for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we have this instruction in the scriptures about men like Barnabas and Moses, to name another, and really the prophets as they gave forth the scripture and the word of God, their teachers of old, instructions of Christ. We need to be people like Barnabas. And then secondly, we need a Barnabas in our own life because we get discouraged. Our fears loom and they look bigger than life to us. We have our fears that just dwarf us. And the evil one capitalizes on all of that. And we who are the Mr. Fixits need to understand there's some things we can't fix. It's going to take the direct intervention of God. Only God can change a heart. So we had better be men and women of prayer. That needs to be part of our encouragement. When we say to someone, I'll pray for you, that ought not to be just empty words. Help us, Lord, to be a Barnabas and encourage us. How thankful we are for our God. You are worthy of our praise and worship this morning. You are the one who lifts us up, and we've been reading how you have done that with the saints of old. We bless thee, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name.